Welcome to Frontline Static, a podcast that helps bridge the gap between work life and home life of healthcare workers, first responders, and military personnel. Hey, thanks for joining me for another week of Frontline Static. Uh, This week I've been feeling a little overwhelmed, um, getting ready to have Halloween for this weekend. And of course, all the kids have decided what they wanted to be for Halloween in the last moment before. And it's a little late for anything to come by Amazon. And I'm not crafty and I can't put anything together. But um, some, some of the grandmas have saved the day and have been willing to do a little bit of sewing for us. So that's great. We're also finishing up some sports for the kids uh, fall season and it's just been busy for us this week. My husband's also been out of state for work so kind of been doing that uh, mom life and uh, work life by myself but um, we're really excited for the holidays to come up. Halloween's just one of our favorite holidays to dress up and eat candy and hang out with friends and so we're looking forward to this weekend. But this week I had the opportunity to have a candid conversation with Sarah who is both a flight paramedic and a friend of mine. She shares on her experience of being persistent to get to where she is in her career, and she talks a little bit about how she resets from the stress and long hours of the job. She also freely talks about the loss of her brother by suicide and how she and her family is not ashamed to talk about his story in order to raise awareness for mental wellness and health. So without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah. Hey, Sarah, how's it going? Hey, good. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Uh, Okay, so um, like just about my work self? Yeah, anything you want to let anybody know? Okay, so I work as a flight paramedic for um, the Ridgecrest base, which is part of the high desert. Um, We're Mercy Air 14. And tell everybody where Ridgecrest is for those people who don't know. <laughs> uh, it's like in the middle of the desert. <laughs> it's the place where we have all the earthquakes. <laughs> okay. But um, it, I'm trying to think. Um, it's where the China Lake Naval Base is. I, I think that's what it's probably most known for. Um, like a about an hour north of Mojave. Um, okay. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of difficult to explain where it is unless you've been here or you've seen us on the news for something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been here for about, uh, about a year and a half. I I've been out at Ridgecrest. Oh, probably not a year and a half. Sorry. A, about a year and two months. Um, and then before that I was up in Visalia, at Skylife Air Ambulance. Um, and I worked as a flight paramedic up there. And tell us about your paramedic, like kind of story, like how do you, for those listeners who want to become paramedics, um, what's kind of the journey to become a flight paramedic? Um, so for me, I, I, um, I became a paramedic when I was 26. So I had already been an EMT for almost five years. Um, And then, you know, I wanted to get into fly. I grew up with, my dad was a medevac pilot. 
he worked for a place called Mama Air, uh, which is out of Asheville, North Carolina. And then my mom is an RN and she's just done mostly um, like ER and trauma. Um, so I, I had a, I've had an interest in flight for a long time. Um, so for me, I, when I had been a paramedic, um, for probably three, three and a half years is when I started applying, um, for, for flight paramedic jobs. Uh, it probably took me about two years to get a call back. Um, just because, you know, it's a very difficult job to get into. Um, and then uh, when I started working for a company called American Ambulance of um, Fresno, um, I met Brian Carnes, who's a flight paramedic there, um, and kind of told him, you know, that I wanted to become a flight paramedic and I was really interested. And I, I I feel like I have to credit him for being the person who kind of got me into it. Um, you know, cause I, I feel that he really believed in me and, um, you know, um, I applied through for sky life through them. Um, cause that's, it used to be like before we were air methods, um, you know, we were through American ambulance. So that's where all the, that's how you got hired. Yeah, that's right. I forgot that we kind of had a contract with them and we were contracted mm -hmm. and working with them too. Yeah. And, and so that's the whole reason why I went to American Ambulance was to kind of try to get my foot in the door with Skylife. Um, so you have to work for the company for six months to get an interview. And I applied. Um, I did not get it the first time um, that I interviewed. And it was um, probably about... So that was December of 2017 that I had my first interview and it was April of 2018 that I got my second interview. And I, I know um, Brian had kind of walked me through like, um, you know, the, the interview process for the second interview. And um, I think I was in your interview, wasn't I? I think you were in the second one. Yeah. 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 The one that I was hired and. Uh -huh. um, and that's, and I was hired with the second interview. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's any, you know, I know a lot of people ask like how you become, and I really don't, I think I got lucky. Like, I think like I was persistent. Like, I don't think it's an easy job to get, to get, I think some people, yes, they, they get lucky and it, it comes to them, but, um, in my experience, I had to really like work for it. I had to consistently apply. I had to consistently put myself out there. Um, you know, I um, just kind of sticking with it and, until it, I got it. Yeah. And I think that's true for everybody who's in this job because you have to really want it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it comes easily for a lot of people. And, and once you do get it, it's it's one of those things that you still have to continually work hard for. Um, and you have to continually be on your A game for, like I always tell people, it's not just what we do on the job. It's what we do outside of the job too. And it really shows because people really look to you as well. Yeah. 
And so as far as like the requirements to become a flight paramedic, I know for nurses, we have to have a certain amount of ICU ER experience. Like what's the experience that you have to have as um, an EMT to become a paramedic and then as a paramedic to become a flight paramedic? So the EMT to paramedic has changed probably quite a bit since I took that transition. I think at the time that I became a paramedic, you had to have a year of busy 911 experience, um, meaning like you had to work at a company that uh, that ran 911 calls, mm. um, and you had to have a year of that to even apply. And then we had to take a written and pass a written uh, to be accepted into paramedic school. Um, but I feel that's changed quite a bit. Like I've heard people say that they've gone straight from EMT to paramedic. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that. I feel like um, that experience is necessary um, to, to be a, a truly good, you know, paramedic. Because even experienced EMTs who become paramedics, like that's a huge job difference. And mm -hmm. you're not going to be good at it, no matter how much um, experience you had prior as an EMT. Like you're, it's going to take some time to, um, to become a good paramedic. Um, and the same for, you know, ground paramedic to flight paramedic. Um, I think the requirement is three years uh, to, to apply for the flight paramedic. Um, I think I had been a paramedic for about six years. Okay. Uh, by and the how time. do you feel like, like your time on the ground as a paramedic um, helped you to transition to flight? Um. I mean, it didn't fully like, right. Like you have to like get into this job and it's, it's still a huge learning, you know, curve here. Um, it's just a completely different, um, aspect of 911. Um, but for me, I think working, uh, cause I worked in Fresno, um, which is a super busy system and just the sheer, amount of calls that you get and then um, the diverse um, nature of all those calls um, is what really helped me to kind of build my confidence that um, I could do something like flight because I, with flight, uh, for the most part, our patients are very acute and critical and, um, you know, and there's a lot of times, especially with the scene calls, you're walking into a scene where everyone's looking at you to, uh, to kind of take control because they're scared um, or they don't know what to do and they're hoping that you do. Um, and, you know, and uh, there's been times when I feel like the flight crews are just as, you know, nervous or, you know, unsure of um, the best course of action, but, you know, you kind of have to put your game face on and, um, and do your best. Um, so I don't, you know, again, with any job, I think like you just have to jump in there and start doing it. Um, um, but I definitely feel that working um, for me, working in Fresno and having that experience and working in, uh, you know, before that I worked to Larry, I, I feel like those two places are extremely busy and, you know, you, you get so many critical calls there. Um, that you really need to be able to experience that. Um, yeah. And you mentioned like 
there's a lot of calls, whether it's transfers from a hospital or seeing calls where we roll up and everybody is looking at you to have an answer. And we're just as nervous as everybody else. So what do you feel like are some top qualities that as a flight crew member, you have to have um, to be able to do our job? Um, I feel like, um, you have to have a lot of patience, um, cause you're going to be working with, um, a lot of different personalities, um, you know, and I mean, a lot of the ground crews, like in the fire crews, they, they're, there's going to be a lot of emotion involved. So I think being patient and being able to kind of walk them through like, Hey, this is what I need. Like and kind of being that calming force walking in like tends to calm everyone else down. Um, Cause if you go in there high strung, you're just going to make a situation worse. So, um, you know, someone with a calm composure is, is definitely necessary. Um, I think being assertive is, is another thing. That's something that I've always struggled with cause I am not a type A personality. So being, super assertive it is um is difficult um you know and I'm not saying like um be a jerk to people or like be real demanding but just being very clear about what the objectives are and like what you need and like what they need to do um being stern like when someone's not doing a task um you know, correctly, or, or maybe they're, you know, if they're bagging a patient, maybe they're bagging too fast, like just, you know, calmly, like telling them like, Hey, like, uh, I know this is a high stress situation. We just, we just need to slow, slow it down a bit. Like, um, I know you're excited, but you're doing a good job. Let's just slow it down a bit. Um, and just being able to kind of control your emotions and, um, you know, being assertive without being, coming across as being a jerk or, um, abrasive. Yeah. I, um, I don't know if you remember our first call that we ran together, <laughs> but it was a post pediatric code and yeah. I'm like the opposite of you type a personality, very assertive. Um, and I just felt like we were such a great partnership because you were so calm, but yet knew, you know, had that confidence and knew just what to do. And I just like really appreciated that because I was nervous and all the nerves were going on with everybody. It was like a huge, everybody was watching us. And, um, it was just great for me to be able to feed off of you of being calm, but yet confident at the same time. And I felt like we really worked together well because of that. Yeah. Um, and I love that we're a nurse medic partnership. How do you feel about that partnership as far as, you know, other, um, other partnerships that you've had in the past? So, um, I mean, it's definitely different from like when you work on the ground and you have, um, your, your EMTs, right. Um, it's just a higher level of education. Um, not to say I, I feel that EMTs are wonderful. Like, um, you know, I, I think they're very underrated, um, in the ground EMS world. Um, but for us, um, it's nice because I think, um, you know, we both come from, we're both educated, but we come from different backgrounds. So, 
you have a paramedic who's used to having to um, really troubleshoot like issues without um, a whole lot of resources um, that we're used to going on, you know, walking into people's home, not knowing anything prior and having to figure it out in a very short amount of time. So you have to be really quick on your feet um, and you have to do it, you know, like we don't have um, the ability to, you know, do lab work or um, have a doctor's opinion, you know, on a lot of this stuff. You can call in if you have time, but typically we don't have those kind of resources. So you have to be um, pretty aware um, of your surroundings and you have to be able to critically think at a, a pretty quick pace. And nurses, um, you know, they come from a background where they have the ability to really um, critically think in a different way. Um, so I feel, um, just their manner of thinking, how they were trained um, is a little bit different. So I think they're more meticulous about stuff. They're um, more thoughtful about certain things. Um, you know, I, I've never been through nursing school, so it's hard for me to say exactly where some of that thinking comes from. But I feel that with nursing, like the, um, you know, a lot of it starts with, you know, like, well, you know, what, a, what are these labs, you know, how do we interpret these labs? How do we interpret um, certain critical illnesses and how how that would affect like something like a scene call, like um, acute trauma or, you know. Um, so there's a lot more thought, I think, that they give certain things. And um, so having those two teams together, you have someone who knows, uh, who, who thinks very quickly um, for immediate um, solutions for certain things. And then you have someone who has who's a little more thoughtful, who's a little, um, has the experience to know, like, I've seen this before and I know like, um, you know, like I know what his labs are gonna look like, or I, I, I can predict what, what they're gonna find on that CT, you know, because I've seen like this play out till the end. And um, so that together, I think, gives a patient like the best chance of survival because we're able to not only, um, you know, fix immediate issues, but we're able to choose um, treatment plans that are gonna benefit them not only immediately, but uh, in the long run. Um, we're not gonna do anything that's gonna harm them. Um, yeah, and I really appreciate that partnership. I, I, I've always said, and when I, mentor people, I tell them, I think it's so much harder to become a nurse, flight nurse than a flight paramedic only because we don't have the same training that you guys have or the same experience. You know, we also, we're taking care of the patient, but then we're also have to learn how to do the radios. And that's something that you guys have always done or, you know, talk to the MICN, give a MIVIT report. Those are a lot of the things that I never worked ER, so I didn't have that. We also came from like a sterile environment in the ICU where you have every 10 of everything you need. And it's like you said, um, you're sometimes you have to use what is available to you. And I think you get this um, 
false sense of security working in the hospital because you always know there's going to be someone there for you. So you only have to think about plan A and maybe plan B, but I know as like a flight crew, we have to think of plan A, B, and C all while at the same time while we're doing 30 things. So I love that merger of a partnership because you guys have seen all the pre-hospital. So you kind of know how to act independently in those kind of instances that we haven't ever seen before. And then, you know, it's like you said, we, we kind of bring, um, you know, the bigger picture of what's going on with the patient or what could go on with the patient. So I think like together, it's just perfect because we know how to take care of the patient in its entirety and no matter what's going to happen or what's thrown at us. Right. What's your favorite part about being a flight paramedic? And then what would you say is the most challenging part? Um, I think the best part is, is really the people and, um, just the relationships that you, um, you make in this field, because, you know, I think it's one thing to, when I worked ground, you know, I constantly had different partners and I may work with a certain partner more than other ones, but you always had different partners. Um, you know, so it's, it's not the same same cruise over and over again. And then I'm sure it's the same with the hospital. You go in and um, constantly different people you're working with, right? Um, but in the flight world, I feel like it's more consistent with the people that you're living with and they really become like a second family. Um, you know, you really get to know people um, and, and in different dynamics, right? Like, so you'll, you'll have like the, the playfulness, like outside of work and you, you get to know kind of who they are and then you get to work with them. And, and that's kind of like the business side of things. Um, so I think that's really neat to be able, um, you know, to build friendships and then take that and make that work into like a business relationship that um, really benefits um, all the people that we help, um, you know, and I know at my, at our base in Ridgecrest, and I know, uh, Fresno and Visalia, I think went the same way as that we have permanent partners, um, which I think has really benefited, um, you know, people in a lot of ways. And especially for that, cause you get to know someone, so, you know, um, weaknesses and strengths, and you're able to build off of that. Um, and, you know, I, I think it really does um, truly benefit like um, the patients that we, we serve. Um, so I think that's my favorite part, just in the challenges, um, like it's constantly challenging. I feel like I'm constantly learning something new. Um, so you definitely grow with this job. Like it's not there, you know, it, there's no wall like that you're gonna hit where you've learned everything there is to know and you're not gonna go anywhere. Like you are always going to be learning something new and always gonna be growing um, into hopefully something better, um, someone better. Um, And then the most challenging thing is, um, you know, really just the calls we run, like, um, you know, we, we never, really know what we're walking into, um, whether it be a scene call or, 
even a transfer, because sometimes transfers can be just as challenging as scene calls, um, especially with, you know, these smaller hospitals that have little resources. Um, they can be really difficult calls to run uh, and to kind of figure out, like, how do we stabilize this patient? And, you know, how do we make sure um, that we get them safely to their destination? Because putting a a critical patient in a helicopter is not an easy thing. Uh, it's not just a simple means of like transferring them. Like there's a lot of factors um, that can negatively affect them. And we have to make sure that we um, really minimize that. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's probably the most challenging thing, um, you know, and we do run a lot of hard calls. Um, I think not knowing some of the outcomes of these more difficult calls is um, also kind of a hardship. Yeah, and I liked what you said about the relationships, because I think that that's my favorite part of the job too, building relationships with people um, that we work with, and then that um, aspect of the business aspect of working together, because I think as you go through hard calls together, you become closer and it shows in the way that you treat your patients and the outcomes for your patients too, because you're that partnership you have is just so strong. You're able to feed off of each other. When a call comes out, you know, all the things that need to get done. And it's almost like unspoken that you just do them and you do it fluidly together. And I also think, I agree that that translates into our patients and how we take care of them as well, because there's an instant trust that a lot of these families and patients have to have with us when we go in and we're picking up a patient from a hospital and they're really, really sick. And the family has seen them sick for days or weeks. And now we're going to tell them we're going to take complete control of your family member, take them out, put them onto an aircraft and then take them somewhere else and them not be able to be a part of that who's been at their side the whole time. So I think um, us being able to create trust with each other translates well into how family members have to trust us very quickly. And we have to be able to um, give them that as soon as possible when we get to a hospital. And I think that really helps when we have a really good partnership um, and we really work on being able to deliver that to the family and to the patient right away as soon as we go there to pick them up. Right. Um, how, I know that you have kids, how has that been like working EMS and, you know, now that you do 24 hour shifts, which you probably were doing 24 hour shifts before, but, you know, living apart from them, how has that been for you? Um, so I've actually done it since I've been 21. I've been in EMS. So I've done these long shifts forever. Um, it is still a learning process as they get older and different factors change. It's a constant um, um, kind of balancing act that we have to do. Um, we've, with the holidays, like we just don't do... <laughs> We don't do traditional holidays anymore. Uh, Thanksgiving doesn't fall on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Christmas does not fall on Christmas. Kids don't know the difference is mm -hmm. really what I found. Um, you know, like uh, when the kids were real little, it's like, oh, Santa knows, you know, our challenges. So he comes a different day for us. He comes on this special day for us. And the kids accept it. It's, you know, um, it's kind of worked out okay. The only day that 
that I uh, usually tell every workplace that I work for um, is I, I don't work Halloween. That is so funny. That's <laughs> me too. I took Halloween off this year. <laughs> Same yeah. exact thing. Because um, Halloween is is definitely my day with um, with my family. Like, I just really love that holiday. It's not a holiday you can do on other days. So we definitely like look forward to that day every year. Um, this year has been different. We haven't done as many of all the Halloween activities we normally would. So it's been a little sad because we've been moving into this new house. Um, but um, typically like we do quite a few family activities um, for Halloween and, and that that's our thing every year. Um, yeah, I, it is hard being away from them. Um, I feel that as I've kind of progressed in my career, like actually um, being where I am now, I probably work less than what I did five years ago. Um, so that's helped quite a bit. So um, I've had a lot more time with my family. Um, and I think they appreciate it too. Um, you know, it, it was hard. It's hard working in EMS when you have little kids because you do miss out on quite a bit. And that is a really difficult thing um, to do. And, and unfortunately for me, um, like there was really no, no other way around that, um, you know, but we just make the time we do have really special. So um, for us, that means like we do a lot of projects. We do a lot of um, like special day trips and we definitely try to fit a lot of um, really special memories into like the short time we have together uh, outside of work. Yeah, and I think it's really important, um, you know, as first responders and healthcare workers, the things that we see, the things that we do, the high levels of stress that we have when we're on the job. And you and I were kind of talking offline before about how tired we are, the long shifts we work. Like, what are some of the things that you do? You mentioned you do some day trips and stuff with your kids, but mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you do to kind of balance out um, all of those things that come with the job and then being a mom at home? Um, so I always think it's important to take, so for me, my thing is hiking. Um, and I do a lot of my hiking outside of my kids, um, just because I need that time to reset. Um, and as much as I love my family and I, I, you know, I do do a lot with my family. I think it's important to have that time away from all your stressors to kind of reset. Um, so for me, I, I try to try to set up days where, where I'm out hiking and it's, um, you know, my day to hike and just kind of uh, be able to work through all my emotions and all my stressors. Uh, Cause then I come back like kind of a wholer version of myself. Um, I, I think that's what you meant by the, the question, like how. <laughs> yeah. And I love that because I think that as moms, we don't do that. Like right. we think that being at home and spending time with our family is what helps us. But I think that we also need to take time for ourselves. 
Right. And whether you're a working mom or stay at home mom, I, I think that um, that's one thing that I've learned over the years too, is that you have to be able to do things independently of mm-hmm. your spouse or your relationship you're in and independently of your kids. Yeah. Because how do you reset if you're constantly doing for them? And that's what we do as moms. Right. And it took me a long time to, to be able to do that. That's not like something that I've always done. Um, cause yeah, definitely feel guilty about it. Cause you feel like, well, I'm, you know, supposed to do everything with my family when I'm not at work. Um, but unfortunately what I found for me is, is I would get into moments where I'd be really depressed and really stressed out and felt like, you know, there was nothing that was, was helping me. Um, but having those like moments where I can go out and hike and, and be a person, be an individual, um, who's not identified by like what I do as a job or identified as, you know, who I am at home, just being myself, you know, um, that really helped me come back and I could be a better uh, person at work. I could be a better mother, uh, better partner. Um, so, yeah. Do you remember that one time you came into shift, we were working together and you told me you went hiking and you think you had a hypoxic event? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I don't hike anymore by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Tell everybody what happened because I just remember as you were saying it, I was like, Sarah, don't ever do that again. You could have died. Um, so I, I do hike a lot and I used to hike a lot by myself and I do a lot of high uh, altitude hiking. So it's not like this was a new thing for me. Um, and I've hiked pretty long distances by myself and did just fine. Um, you know, and I'm talking about 20 plus miles I've done in a day, uh, at high altitude. Um, so I felt pretty confident I could do this hike. Um, this hike was a little bit longer than usual. It was a 26 mile hike in the high Sierras. Uh, that was round trip. And um, I would say that's long. That's very yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I felt that, you know, people do it all the time. And I, you know, I thought I can do this. Like I shouldn't have any issue. I even um, got a prescription. I can't think, uh, I can't think of the name of the medication, but it's a, you know, um, like a diuretic, like it um, is supposed to prevent um like the, all the problems you get at altitude, you know, all the altitude sickness and stuff. I think it's Diamox. I think that's what it was. Mm. Um, so I started taking that and I, I thought I was all prepared. I told everyone where I was going to go, like the route I was taking. And I ended up getting probably a mile away from the, the peak. And I started swelling up really bad. Um, I, my heart rate dropped to about 40, um, like started having a lot of trouble breathing and it was a little bit scary. And I I don't think I could, I really registered what was happening at the time. Like I knew I was sick. I knew I had to turn around. I did turn around. Um, but, um, it was a Mount Langley is, is the mountain that I was trying to do. Well, the problem with that is you're sitting at the time I was sitting at probably 13 something thousand feet. And I had to turn around, um, but you have to go down a valley up over another mountain and go down in the, um, 
you know, you, you don't get down in elevation very quickly with that hike, especially when you're sick. Um, so, you know, my fingers were blue and uh, yeah, I did not feel good. Um, somehow I made it back to my car, <laughs> made it back uh, to my hotel. Um, but that scared me a lot. I was, um, I had a productive cough by the time I got back to my car and um, felt very sick. I probably should have gone to a hospital, <laughs> but again, I was not, um, not thinking correct, correctly at the time, uh, probably cause I was hypoxic. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the next day that I kind of like thought about, I was like, Oh my God, like, I'm like starting to realize what was going on with me. But at the time I just, you know, I knew I was sick and I knew, knew I needed to to get back to my car. <laughs> yeah. I remember oh. when you were telling me this story, you were just like, I think you were saying you were going around in circles and coming back to yeah. the same spots. And you're like, wait, there's something going on with me. I think I'm hypoxic. There was a two hour window where I was probably about 15. Well, like I, I was right next to the parking lot. It was, um, yeah. I was probably right next to the parking lot and I was lost for about two hours. Couldn't find my way. Um, and like looking back at like the next day, it really scared me thinking about, I was like, oh my God, like I could have died. Like, so I don't hike by myself anymore. Um, I don't think it matters how much experience you have hiking and hiking at high altitude. Um, I feel like I was pretty prepared for that hike too. Um, you just can't predict you know, when you're going to be affected by those things. And yeah. I've heard other similar stories where people hike all the time, have no issues. And then one day they have it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what happened that day. Like, um, but I know now, like I do not hike by myself um, unless it's like a very, it's not high altitude and it's um, like a very short trail. I do not hike by myself. Yeah. <laughs> that's, so. that's a good thing now for you. <laughs> Yeah. Now I know you and I have really bonded and we've talked about before both having brothers in military and both, um, you know, suffering. I know your brother suffered from some depression and mine from addiction and losing my brother, losing his life to it. Eventually. Um, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your brother and kind of his story and, um, what happened with him. Yeah. Um, so my younger brother, Andrew, um, he was active duty in the army, uh, stationed, um, at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado. Um, he was a Black Hawk pilot. Um, and at 25, we actually didn't know he was depressed. Um, I, even his closest friends, I don't think saw any of the signs that he was depressed. Um, but he had committed suicide when, when he was 25 years old, um, at his home there in color, it, uh, it was a little town called fountain, but it's a part of Colorado Springs. Um, we were really shocked and taken back by it. We don't have any family history of suicide. And, and with Andrew, um, he is probably the last person that you would think would do something like that. Um, very, he seemed like a very happy person. He was very outgoing, um, you know, definitely a type A personality. Um, just, 
he touched so many lives. Like he was always the person to like show up for you. Um, always helping others. Like, um, he was very athletic. Um, you know, like just really seemed like he took really good care of himself. Um, really took care of the people around him. Just, you know, loved unconditionally. Like, um, so it was really shocking for us. Um, you know, when he didn't show up to, he didn't show up to work and that's how we, we first knew there was like an issue. We really didn't think he was dead. Um, so when we did find out he was dead, it was the last thing on our mind that it was a suicide. Um, but that, that's ultimately what it was, um, was that he, um, you know, he shot himself. Um, we really don't know why there was no letter. Um, we can only kind of try to put pieces together, like what happened. Um, you know, so it was very difficult to deal with. Um, I know that with it being a suicide, um, people don't know how to handle that. Um, so you get like people who can't even say like, I'm sorry for your loss. Like people just mm. kind of avoid you. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's the same for like addiction. Like it's just, it's that whole mental illness realm. Like people don't yeah. know, it makes them uncomfortable. So I know um, for me, I had lost a friend back in high school. So I'd already been through a funeral of a, um, a suicide victim. and. Um, you know, so I already knew, like, when my brother died, like, I knew it was really important to be very open, like, this was a suicide, like, this is what happened, like, we're not going to hide details of it, we're, we're not going to, um, we're not going to be those people, like, we're not going to be ashamed of this, like, mm -hmm. it's very sad, it's a great loss, um, but it, I, I feel, and I still feel it's important to be very open about it um, because so many people have um, difficulty in, in talking about stuff like that. Um, and I think that was, um, you know, at least from my perspective, like looking at all the factors there, I feel like it, it was preventable for Andrew. Um, like in many cases, it's very preventable. Um, you know, the military, with their pilots, and I don't know about other jobs in the military, but with pilots, they're not allowed to have mental illness in, at all, or they're grounded and they're not allowed to fly, um, which is really unfortunate because everyone at some time in their life is gonna experience depression, anxiety. Like these are all very normal emotions to have. Um, the problem is, is we're not able to deal with them. We're not able to um, cope with them. They become something greater and they, they build. And I think that's what happened with Andrew is he had a lot of stuff. We had lost our dad a few years before. He had a lot of stress and he had a lot of depression. And I think if he were to be allowed to go in and talk to a therapist and, um, you know, kind of work through what he had been going through, this wouldn't have been a thing. We wouldn't have had to bury him. 
Um, but I think this, it made it more stressful for him. And I, I'm sure there's many other people like that where they're faced with, you know, for Andrew, flying was his whole life. Like he dreamed of being a pilot and he worked very hard to become a pilot. Um, so he couldn't, in his mind, afford to lose that. So he just kept that all to himself and didn't tell anyone because he was so afraid of losing his job. Um, and unfortunately, it ended up being he lost his life um, trying to save his job. Um, so um, I feel that if, you know, being very open and honest, like about mental illness and how it actually affects all of us is super important. Um, you know, I, I do hope that one day, like, um, you know, with organizations like the military is that they recognize that this is just human. Like, this is just being human, being depressed, having anxiety, like, don't threaten someone with taking their job, just help them, build them, like, um, you'll make better people out of them, you'll make better soldiers. Um, I think the rate um, that suicide affects the military and affects veterans and, and just mental illness in general, PTSD, all those things could be greatly minimized if the military took a different stance on, on how they treat um, their servicemen and how they approach it. Um, it shouldn't be punitive. You know, no one can help or predict a mental illness, just like you can't help or predict, you know, things like cancer, um, you know, or even diabetes, right? We can do things to, you know, help prevent it, but we can't a hundred percent guarantee it's not going to affect us at some time. Um, you know, and you just treat it when it comes and you treat it, you know, sooner rather than later. And, um, but yeah, it's definitely been a process. Um, you know, did you have any specific questions about it or? Yeah, no, I just like that you, you bring that up because I think that even, you know, as first responders and in healthcare, it's often looked down upon to talk about our feelings or talk about a hard call that we had or have emotions about it. Right. Whether, especially negative emotions or have anxiety or be triggered by anything. So I think, you know, when you work in a high stress job and, you know, people like us, like military healthcare workers and first responders, it's something, it's like this stigma that we don't talk about. And when we don't talk about it, it almost dehumanizes it. Like it's not okay for us to feel that way. And so I think that's why a lot of people get depressed and a lot of people don't want to express it and they want to um, let it build up and stay inside to this point, you know, where it just, they don't seek help because they think something's wrong with them. And that's like kind of the conversation. That's really what this podcast is about. And, you know, my life coaching business is just making it more okay that we're all human. We're all experiencing these emotions. And then right. instead of just avoiding them and letting them build up, like, let's talk about them. Let's erase this stigma that we have as these organizations that it's not okay um, to have them, you know, let's, let's start talking about them and normalize the conversation, you know? Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, yeah, I think even for me, like, it is very difficult to, um, 
to not be tough. Like when you're in, in this job, um, cause I know even with my brother, him dying, it took me a few years before, like, I could admit, like I had PTSD from, you know, like, um, it's a weird thing to say, but losing a, you know, a loved one, um, especially a sibling, you know, cause I feel like when you're still young, um, your siblings are the longest and most important relationship you have. Mm-hmm. Um, they've kind of been through pivotal moments with you. Um, like they've probably spent more time with you than your parents. So losing a sibling is, is a very difficult thing. And for me, um, like I thought that I had the, you know, coping mechanisms to handle it. I thought I had the wisdom to be able to handle it. And it took me a few years to real, you know, to be able to admit that no, like I I needed um, outside help. Um, So for me, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing a therapist or um, talking to people about what you experience. It's different from just talking to friends or family, like having someone who doesn't know the situation um, be able to give an outside perspective. It, it really helps you, um, work through those, those issues. Cause a lot of times they're just asking questions that maybe you didn't think of, like they're asking questions that, um, haven't been raised before and give you the ability to see things from a different perspective and really work through them. Um, you know, so I, I do understand how difficult it is for, first responders, you know, to, to kind of be okay with not being tough. Um, we're just as human as anyone else. Um, you know, and it's important to, to really like make sure we work through those emotions and, and really, you know, like not let them build up. Um, you know, it, we don't have to be tough all the time. Yeah. (laughs) What advice would you give someone who is either dealing, you know, with the loss of losing a loved one or who, um, and then someone who's feeling depressed right now, but is kind of afraid to talk about it or bring it up with their family members. Um, I mean, I, I, do you want to say that everyone grieves differently? So I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong way to grieve or, um, you know, to express certain things. Um, yeah, I think the number one thing to remember is like, everyone gets depressed, like everyone deals with loss. Um, that's not something like, that you'd be going through alone at any point. Like if you feel like you're the only person who, um, who's feeling anxiety, who's feeling like they're broken, like you're not like, um, there is millions of other people that feel the same exact way. Um, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a bad thing. I, and I really don't think there's a such thing as negative or positive emotions. There's just emotions. Um, we don't control what we feel. Emotions just happen. Um, what you do control is, you know, your response to that, like what you do about that. Um, 
I, I think with uh, things like depression, anxiety, um, you know, sometimes, and a lot of times there are chemical imbalance, right? We need to get that fixed. It is a, a disease process, right? So like anything else, we go to a doctor. So you go to a doctor for, for those things and you talk to them about it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, having to take things like antidepressants or um, having to go to a therapist and talk things out. Um, again, it's the same as if you were to like break a bone or get, you know, high blood pressure, we go to the doctor and uh, they set us up with the, the tools we need to fix it because we're not able to do that ourselves. Uh, we're not equipped to do that ourselves. Um, so we go to someone who is and someone that can help us. Um, and I think it's important to look at any kind of mental illness the same way. It is no different from any other disease. Um, yeah, I, I mean, um, and I, I would, I mean, everyone's different. Everyone comes from different families. Some people don't have supportive families, um, you know, people who are going to be understanding um, I think it's important to surround yourself with people who are supportive and who are going to, um, you know, want the best for you. Um, and unfortunately, you know, just because someone's family doesn't mean that they're the best thing for you. Uh, you have to be able to let go of what's not, um, good for your growth. And, um, whether that be, even if that's family. Um, if they're not good for you, let them go, um, you know, or distance yourself, you know, like, um, during negative times, you, you have to find people who are going to help with your growth and, and not, um, hold you back or make you feel like there's something wrong with you, um, with something like depression or anxiety, something you really can't help. It just happens. And, it happens to absolutely everyone at some point. Um. Yeah, I I really appreciate you talking today about your brother and your story, and you know just the importance of mental wellness and awareness, and that we all have it because it is a conversation you know that we just need to have more of and be more open about. So I really appreciate that. there was something you were able to take away this week from Sarah's story I know I did it, it resonated well with me and um, my situation with my own brother and just um, having the courage to talk about mental health and um, how important it is and how human it is for all of us to have some of those feelings in some sort sort of time in our life and uh, to seek help to to tell other people to get medical attention when it is needed. And to not be ashamed for getting the help that you may need. That's it for this week. Thank you to Sarah for being so open and having the conversation with me. And we will talk with all of you next week. Bye.